to You Can Do That with Lisa and Lee, the show where we find the most interesting people we know and ask them, you can do that? I'm your co-host, Lisa. And I'm your other co-host, Lee. <laughs> this week, we're talking to Anna Vizeski about writing a leadership book that actually sounds interesting. But before we get started, I wanted to ask you, Lee, what have you been up to this week? Well, I finished playing Outer Worlds. That's what I've been doing mostly. I've had it in my little in my little box for. I mean, I like I literally own it, and it's just been sitting there for like two years. Yeah. I've really got it. I've got to go down the right rabbit hole on the right day. I know. I feel you. I lo- I like it. It's fun. This is the second time I played it because I hated Starfield and I needed something else. Everyone oh, I God. love hated Starfield. <laughs> yeah, I know. Same. I, the only thing that disappoints me about Outer Worlds is you can't do romance. Like, it's there. It's so, it's like right there in your grasp and just. Why would they do that to us? No idea. They gave me the perfect boyfriend. We still have that dating sim board game we need to finish. <laughs> I know, right? What was that called? <laughs> um, I don't know, because you own it. Fog of Love, was that it? Fog of Love. Yeah, it's called Fog of Love. Fog of love. It is very fun. Um, we just haven't been able to hang out in person for a long time because COVID happened and yeah. then I moved across the state. Yeah. Um, but one day, one day we will be victorious and play it again. Uh, the only other interesting thing I've been doing is I... Listeners, if you don't know this, I have another podcast. It's called Very Random Encounters. It's very fun. You should listen to it. But um, we have a Patreon over there. And one of the reward tiers is to get a postcard mailed to you each season. And it's like, you know, themed to the season. And this season we're playing Beam Me Up, which is a Star Trek themed uh, role playing game. So I've been making Star Trek postcards. And I love it so much. I'm doing the art form and everything. It's great. I love that. That's so nice. Yeah. What have you been up to this week? In the spirit of you can do that, um, right before we recorded this, I was at grown-up adult tap dancing class. Because did you know that you can Ooh. do that? That like there's a lot of dance to, like, and I'm not talking like tap dancing class for people who are super good at tap. I'm just talking about a bunch of grown-ups who were like, I used to do this thing when I was a kid, and now it would be fun to do it, and. We dance in the recital and everything. It's so silly, and I love That's it. That's so neat. I love that. I, have to pay, I just had to pay my costume deposit for the spring show, <laughs> and it's very fun. Oh, my gosh. When is your show? I want to come. I'll let, you, I'll let you know. It won't be till May. We're not doing anything till May. But Well, I mean, that's great news because I don't have any time. <laughs> but I might in May. Yeah, maybe in May. I'll give you a heads up ahead of time. It's very it's very nice. fun and it's silly and it's just like a very typical, like normal dance studio. And um my friend actually does some teaching there and she one of my other colleagues at work actually and she invited me when she found out I used to dance. And it's fun because that's something I did, you know, for pretty seriously actually as a kid and as a like teenager and uh it's fun to kinda get to do that again. Oh, yeah, that's really neat. Another funny thing that happened was, you know, I brought my I had a remote speaker come into my my class this week and and talk because he has a cool project and I wanted to talk to my students about it you know when I brought out my my snowball microphone and they were like what like what's that for and I kind of just jokingly was like well I am a millennial you know I have to have something to record my podcast on and then I just kind (laughs) of like shut my mouth thinking I I really shouldn't tell them that I literally am recording a podcast (laughs) this week it's not what I bought this microphone for but uh, but I just kind of felt funny. like I felt like the biggest stereotype right after I said that because I was like, actually, we're about to release the podcast too. <laughs> so, if any of my students are out there listening, now you know my secret. I know. 
my neurologist just found out that I have a podcast and that I wrote a book. And she was just like, wait, what? Wait, hold on. You've been coming here for how long? How did I not know this? So that was fun. Okay, well, do we want to go ahead and meet Anna? Because this is a really good one. Y'all are going to love this. Yeah, I would love to meet Anna. She was really fun to talk to, and I loved learning all of the things that she told us about the Coast Guard and, like, her book, and it was a really good conversation. It's a wild ride. Let's go. our friend Anna Wisniewski, who has more than 18 years of experience in crisis communications, crisis management, and operations. She spent 12 years as an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard, where she founded their social media program, was the first official blogger, and launched their first mobile app. Anna then worked for the Amazon Web Services as head of global disaster response, and as head of launch, blog, and podcast operations. Her most recent grown-up job was VP of marketing operations for Oracle. She currently teaches crisis communications at the University of Washington in Seattle, does crisis management consulting with her company, Merwiff, and has a book, Fuck It, Watch This. I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce the fuck or not, but I did. (laughs) And it's coming out in March. I'm so excited to read this book. Um, So welcome, Anna. Thank you. It's going to be entertaining seeing where uh, my book title gets censored or not. Um, I'm waiting to see if I get kicked off TikTok (laughs) or, or Instagram for my title, but so far, so good. So far, so good. You have some of the most like wild assortment of job titles that all sound so extremely (laughs) important too. Yeah. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, for starting off your experience in the Coast Guard, just because I don't think of people who were in the Coast Guard as an officer as people who found a social media program and that sort of thing. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that time and kind of how you got into that position? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually third generation Coast Guard following my grandfather, uncle, and father. Uh, So it was kind of the family business, so to speak. (laughs) But they were all engineers, whereas I was an English major. So, you know, kind of the, the artistic sheep of the family. And I joined the Coast Guard because I loved their mission of saving lives and helping people. And it's always been a core part of who I am. Uh, But when I joined, uh, I got my commission in 2004, shortly after that Hurricane Katrina happened. So I hadn't even had my commission a full year when I got deployed to be a first responder during Hurricane Katrina. And what I was deployed for was the fact that I had been an English major and I had worked for a magazine in London and I had a journalism background. So I ended up as a public information officer during the disaster. So helping the news get out, making sure safety messages were going in the right places, And it was the best job I'd ever done. Being there and being a part of that really changed my view and changed my life and changed how I saw the world and what I could do with the skills I had gotten as a storyteller. So that's kind of what kicked it all off was being boots on the ground during Katrina and helping make sure the rest of the world knew what was really going on, but also helping make sure that people who were in that area were getting the safety messages they needed and things like that. 
So yeah, I was in the Coast Guard from 2004 to 2016, where basically, if I wasn't doing search and rescue operations, I was doing what they call public affairs, which in the civilian world is media relations and government relations. And so, yeah, I did a lot of that stuff. And it just happened to be right place, right time. And being a digital native, uh, such a dated term, <laughs> a digital native, I decided one day when I was the public affairs officer in charge of District 8. So basically the entire Gulf Coast and all the way up the Mississippi uh, was my area of responsibility. Well, I decided to start a YouTube channel. It's one of those, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Oh, definitely. Kind of I can't even imagine mm, yeah. trying to ask for permission to start a YouTube channel <laughs> as a, working for the federal <laughs> government or the military. <laughs> well, so fun fact, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, there were no rules against having a YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, but imagine if you'd asked. <laughs> yeah, so the thing is, is at that time, because YouTube and all, and Twitter, Twitter hadn't even been born yet. It was born, I think, the next year, or whatever we're calling that stupid thing this week. But um, it was all very young, because this was 2005, 2006. And so there were no rules against doing it. So what I did was I started the YouTube channel and I encouraged our field units to get us videos from their day-to-day -day activities and things they were doing in the field. And then we gave them the appropriate regulation treatment, meaning we put a slide at the beginning and a slide at the end, the way we were supposed to if we were turning it into headquarters to basically go into the giant black hole that was the video files back in the day. <laughs> So what, it, what had happened was people didn't want to get us our, their video because they never saw it again. They'd send us this video from being underway, and because it didn't make it on CNN, it would vanish. Like, it would just kind of go into this archive, and this person who spent all this time catching this video and getting it to you never got to see it again. So the reason I started the YouTube channel was to encourage our younger members to start sending us these videos, and then... I would send them back the YouTube link so they could share it with their friends and family going, look at the cool work I do. Oh, that's neat. Now, because we were the public affairs office, I also knew what was allowed to go out, what wasn't allowed to go out. And so when, when the captain from headquarters called me to go, what the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> I was able to point out that I just was using a public release forum, that I hadn't released any inappropriate video. They were all in good standing with the rest of our policies. They had the correct data hooked onto them. And uh, I think that's when he kind of knew he was in trouble with me. Um, <laughs> and that's how I started. And that's how I started their first YouTube channel. And when they saw the success of that, I ended up being asked to come up to headquarters uh, from New Orleans for three months. Let me tell you, life is never better than when you're on orders to D.C. for three months. I lived like right off DuPont Circle on someone else's <laughs> dime. It was great. Wow. But I was brought up to basically help get the social media off the ground and to build and launch what was then called the Coast Guard Compass, the official blog of the service. So I was actually uh, the first official blogger for any armed service. That is not something I figured would happen when, you know, I got an English degree. <laughs> I just love that you're doing all these cool things with an English degree because, um, yeah. and I'm saying this, like, listen, miss with a physics degree over here, I had a crisis when I graduated college being like, I don't know, I don't think I have any skills, you know. Um, I know some people who have done the most amazing things with English degrees, and I absolutely hate it when people say, what are you going to do with an English degree? Like, basically anything you want is the answer. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm going to be cool as hell. Clearly. Yeah, it's, I'm going I'm to hook it to something else. And that was the thing is, um, I went to the University of Washington, and the University of Washington, as you can imagine, being in the Seattle area, is very tech forward. 
So on top of being an English major, I have ADHD. And so I hyper fixated at one point on teaching myself HTML and CSS. So I was an English major who also knew how to code web pages. Because then I went on to figure out PHP and other languages to be able to do my own web pages. It's one of those things where I joke that the fact that I hyperfixate on work skills as my ADHD fixations a lot uh, <laughs> has made me kind of a jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah, what? that's so handy. Say, so is there anything you can't do? Just curious. For the, for the I can't draw. Oh, okay, that's fair. I that's cannot fair. draw. You have just some kind of limitation. Um, I used to sing with the Seattle Girls Choir, so I've sung with the Seattle Opera, so I can sing, I can sight read music, I can knit and crochet, uh, but for the life of me, no matter what I can do, I can't draw. Oh, also, I can, I've never been able to figure out the guitar. I've tried. It just, it's not happening. It's good to know that there's some limitations. <laughs> did it feel momentous when you were doing it? Or did it feel like cool to be like, I don't know, starting out something or like creating something, um, forging a path? Did you feel like you were forging a path? I felt like I was fighting everyone. Um, oh. <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, when I went down to Katrina, I had already been, like a lot of us had been using SMS texting. You know, this is before all the fun iPhones and emojis. God, that makes me sound so old. <laughs> but anyway, I was teaching some of the admirals how to text because when the cell towers were down, you couldn't get phone calls out or something as big as an email, but you could text, right? So imagine going from that to trying to explain to them, that uh, social media isn't a fad, <laughs> that yeah. it's not going away. And I can tell you there was one conference of my peers where I literally stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of the old salts, that's what we'll call them to be polite, the old salts, and went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, Like, and voices were definitely raised. One of them actually went on to be one of the guys behind the Mars Curiosity uh, campaign, and I tease him constantly that he owes me drinks for the rest of his life <laughs> because I was the one who got the Coast Guard to take this stuff seriously. And so it was actually mostly an uphill battle and constantly having to prove why this was important and why it was something that the service needed to do. Right. And at the end of the day, what I finally got through to them was this is where stories are going to be told. If we do not take up our space as these things are being built, Someone else is going to take them from us and someone else is going to tell our story. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, fear tactics like that work really well with senior officers. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. It was a battle. And it wasn't until after the fact that I realized like, oh, wow, huh. I did some really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, it certainly sounds cool from here. And I mean, if we're going for literally cool, my favorite thing, I mean, besides like the, the social media stuff and being on the cutting edge of all of that, I think my favorite thing I got to do was I got to actually go to the Arctic on the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Oh, wow. So I, I lived in Antarctica right after I graduated from college because why not? There were jobs and I went. And so my last tour in the Coast Guard was I was deployed on the Coast Guard Cutter Healy and I got to go up and go past the Arctic Circle. And, and that was a pretty incredible experience. And, you know, I, I strongly recommend, you know, a lot of people forget the Coast Guard exists or they don't know what the Coast Guard does. And it's a great service. And unlike the other branches that have, that are in the Department of Defense, the Coast Guard's about saving lives, 
protecting the environment. So I was at the BP oil spill for 60 days. It was a long one. You know, I was, I was at the oil spill, uh, Coasties, you know, anytime there's a major spill uh, on federal waters, the Coast Guard's the one there putting out the boom and cleaning it up. And, uh, yeah, we do some port security, but, you know, search and rescue, and there's nothing quite like knowing that, yeah, for the blogs and the social media, that's all well and good. But when I was doing search and rescue operations, I literally helped save people's lives. And there is nothing quite like that feeling of the one time I went down to the pier as the boat was coming in with the people they saved. And this woman who'd been out there with her now fiance, I'm surprised she still decided to marry him after he proposed to her and then got them into a search and rescue case. But <laughs> True love. <laughs> That's True just me. Love. True love. <laughs> but uh, when I came down the pier, she found out that I was the SAR controller who had found them. And the woman almost tackled me with a hug. And that hug and knowing that I helped in that situation and in other situations, that's always been um, more what I'm proud of than than some of the the stuff that's made my career. As weird as that sounds. No, it does not sound weird. The the tech stuff is a great career. The tech stuff is a great career, but the life-saving is the, the part that has my heart. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. That's really cool. And then I got out and went to work for the man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. The other yeah, man. So, so let's talk about that a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was going to jump ahead, but I would. I think a quick question with, like, where I see your other jobs at or, like, I mean, what was that transition like going into extremely large corporate private environment from a job at the Coast Guard? Uh, so I would say it kind of feels like getting kicked out of the Justice League. (laughs) So (laughs) the way I like to, well, and not, not Zack Snyder's Justice League. I mean, the actual comic books. The thing is, is that, uh, my specialty, so I did search and rescue operations, but my specialty of technology and communications isn't actually a career field in the Coast Guard. So I basically got what the Coast Guard equivalent of laid off is. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't get picked up for uh, one level of promotion and it's up or out in the Coast Guard, or it was at the time. They're changing that now. Yeah. And I was kind of glad to be going because I really wanted to focus on tech and communications and, and the Coast Guard and I weren't a good fit anymore. But at the same time, it had been 12 years of my life. I had grown up with it. It was safe. It was home. You knew the language, all that. Getting out of the service is incredibly hard. Um, there are some statistics out there that a lot of veterans are at their highest rate of potential suicide attempts and, and ideation, as well as alcoholism and other problems uh, within the first year to two years that they get out of the service. And a lot of it is, besides PTSD and things from combat or whatever else, a lot of it is there's a huge loss of identity. Mm. When you're in the Coast Guard, you say, I am an officer. I'm an officer in the Coast Guard. I am. When I say I work for Amazon, oh, I do this for Amazon. I'm the, you know, I work for Amazon. No, I am an officer. There's just, that right there is the core fundamental difference. Your uniform goes more than like what you're wearing to the office. It's, it's more than that, right? So when you get out, it's like, who the hell am I now? And... You know, you have to pick out your own pants. Uh, most of us <laughs> men, men grow, men grow facial hair. Uh, all my friends who have retired or gotten out immediately grow a beard and women do crazy colors with their hair. So my hair has been every color of the rainbow since I got out. But there's a lot of changes when you go into a corporate environment. Now, I lucked out. 
in that I knew Jeff Barr, the VP of evangelism for AWS. I know him from grad school. So he knew me personally. So when I got hired, I was working with him. So he already knew me. And I lucked out in that my boss knew the Coast Guard. He had been an EMT in a previous life and he knew the Coast Guard and had worked with us. So he understood. And my skip level was a former Marine. And the two of them were hilarious. My, my boss, Staten, and my skip level, Reed, in that I could stick my head into their office and ask for a translation. <laughs> like, someone just said this to me. What does that mean? <laughs> and that was really, really helpful. But, you know, there were things that weren't easy to tell. Like, when you walk into a room with a bunch of military people, you can eyeball their shoulders, their collar, and the ribbons on their chest and have an idea of how long they've been in, what rank they are, where they've been and what they've done. You can't do that in the civilian world. So learning your footing without those guideposts is kind of like learning to walk again. And so it was, it was tricky, but I really lucked out. And I also lucked out that uh, our VP, Ariel Kelman, who's now the CMO for Salesforce, he was awesome. And he noticed very quickly that because of my Coast Guard background, I didn't wig out when things were on fire. Mm. So I ended up as the head of launch operations uh, about a year into my stint because I was originally joined just to run the blog. I was running the whole blog as a platform. And then when all of launch operations for all of AWS, so the process by which everything at AWS launched needed to be rebuilt from the ground up so that people stopped burning out, crying and quitting. He, he asked me if I wanted to do it, if I wanted to take on the challenge. And so I did. That's cool. It's really funny to me to to hear like uh, some of these things that you're talking about because my husband's in tech. These are just some of the same words I hear from him all the time too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a whole language. It's pretty funny because I thought we had a lot of acronyms in the Coast Guard. Amazon Web Services beats the Coast Guard for acronyms. <laughs> it is mind blowing. They had a whole wiki just to help you figure out acronyms. Wow. So, Oof. <laughs> How did you get to the point of teaching crisis communications? And what does that look like when, it, when you say you teach at the university? Yeah, so I have a Master of Communication Digital Media and a Master of Communication in Network Analytics from the University of Washington. So I'm a, I joke with my husband, who's an Oregon duck, that I am a triple husky. <laughs> For any of you who don't know, the, those two schools do not like each other at all. So I had gone to grad school there, and when I, was, when I was in the communications program, I had mentioned that with the way communications have changed, it's no longer the 24-hour. It's a 24-hour news cycle. It's not morning news, evening news. It's constant. And with misinformation and all of these things that were going around, I suggested to the program, I was like, hey, you know, in the future, you're going to want to have a crisis comms class because crisis communications in today's digital world is trickier than it's ever been. There's different demons you got to fight. There's different ways that things light on fire. You know, you have someone tweet something stupid, fly to Africa for work, and by the time she lands, you've had to fire her and done do emergency uh, communications on why what she posted wasn't okay. You know, those sorts of things. So they had actually started the program. Uh, they actually had another teacher teaching before I joined. And um, when I got out of the Coast Guard, so I'm what they call a type one public information officer. So that means uh, when I was in, I was qualified to run like a Katrina level disaster. So I've got a lot of experience and a lot of unusual experience. 
And so the crisis communications course has been one of their more popular courses. So they asked if I would be willing to teach it because I have such a different perspective than the other teacher who has uh, been more on the private sector political side, where I've been more on the disaster product failure uh, side of things. So I started teaching, gosh, two or three years ago now, during the pandemic when I started teaching. My first class was actually undergrad, uh, which was as, you know, Lisa, you taught undergrads, right? I, oh, I exclusively teach undergrads. I don't have any grad students. Yeah, you're a saint. <laughs> um, I have really good students. We've got a, we have a, a different student population and my students are amazing. So uh, I, I'm the luckiest. Yeah. <laughs> I taught second graders. I don't know if that's, does that count? <laughs> I don't know. I think second graders have better crisis comm skills than most CEOs I know because they just kind of tell the truth unvarnished. Uh. They don't think about how's this going to make me look. They just kind of tell you how it is, um, which is actually a fairly good crisis comms technique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the undergrads, I think the hard part with teaching undergrads first was it was also COVID times. Yeah. And so these students were clearly over it. They were tired. They weren't getting the college experience that like I got of being on campus and meeting new friends and living in the dorms and all that. And so that was the first class I taught. And then, yeah, I've been teaching the grad school classes since then. And it's a lot of fun because, as you can imagine, a crisis comms class changes every term. I bring in new cases every term. There are some big ones that you stick with all the time. Like the BP oil spill is a cornerstone that changed how, how some of crisis comms works. And doing a comparative analysis between the Exxon Valdez spill and the BP spill and why why the news on them was so different. You know, there's there's some changes, but it's a lot of fun because each week I will be sitting the day before class going, shit, I should probably talk about this thing that just happened. And let's just say that uh, I joked with my students that this is 2020 season three <laughs> and the writers need to be fired because, mm-hmm. man, it has been one thing after another. So... It's uh, it's a lot of fun, but yeah, that's how I got into it. Was I used to go to that school and then suggested the program for crisis comms, and then when I got out of the Coast Guard and I moved back to Seattle, they asked if I'd like to be one of the teachers. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. I and the communications leadership program at the UW is outstanding. Um, really enjoyed being a student in it, and really enjoy the students that come out of the program. Uh, they're a pretty sharp bunch. Yeah. That's great, too. I'm a big advocate for more teachers that come from other fields and become teachers from the workforce, basically. Yeah. Instead of going the teacher (laughs) route. I keep threatening my husband that I'm going to go and get my PhD. (laughs) Don't. I won't say that to a lot of people, but I would say it to you. Um, Do it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I, that's the thing that, you know, when I ended up going back and then eventually when I went back to school, I would have said, if you had asked me in 2016, I would have told you I'm doing anything but going into academia. And then here I sit (laughs) as a professor on the (laughs) track. But, you know, I ended up, you know, I went back and I did it and I, and I had thought about staying on for a PhD when I did my master's and they, uh, I had one friend at one point who was like, are you kind of mad you didn't just do it? Because like, you could have just gotten, like, you could save so much time. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. Like, if I had done a PhD when I was 25, I would have dropped out. And I am so much better of a professor because I have that actual, like, real work experience in my field. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not, I know I'm a professor of physics, but I don't really, like, my specialty is not, is, is a very operational radiation safety program. So, like, yeah. you know, that having that real experience, I would 
I can't imagine doing my job well without that. Not to say that there's people who don't do a good job as professors. I don't want to <laughs> like, you know, but like that's, it's, I'm just so much better of a, of a teacher because of that experience. And Well, and that's the thing is I always encourage everyone, like part of the reason I've made it to where I am is always trying that thing. Like the, I think too many of us get caught up and like, I think it's my very first chapter of the book. I talk about metagaming the system. And one of the things you have to think about immediately is what do I actually want? Not what are my parents telling me I'm supposed to want? Not what is Instagram telling me I'm supposed to want? Not what my teachers are, what do I actually want? And for me, for example, in the Coast Guard, most everyone around me, most people, the normal people, so to speak, were looking to make sure they got promoted. Yeah, they want to do, do a good job, but a big part of the being in the Coast Guard was I want to make you know, the next rank and I want to be a captain someday and I want to be an admiral. And you can ask any of my commanding officers, and I used to joke, no, I don't care about making captain. I want to do things that matter, and I want to do things that I believe are good and things that, for lack of a better word, keep me engaged. And that was what was important to me. It wasn't necessarily these are the boxes I need to check to get promoted. It was where is where am I happiest? Where am I thriving? Where am I doing the most good? And I've held to that. So, you know, I, I was at, at AWS, and I was on the disaster response team when COVID hit. And so, as you can imagine, being on the AWS disaster response team when COVID hit was was rough. There was a lot of calls with CDC, and there were talking to different science organizations to make sure they had the right compute power to, to do diagnostics. There were all of these different things we were doing, but COVID was also impacting the company. So then I also was looking internally and helping teams set up like watch rotations, essentially, similar to what we had in the military, these watch rotations. And it was so that our teams didn't burn out because we were so busy supporting the customers, but also being impacted ourselves and suddenly moving to working from home. And everyone wanted to help so much that what you get is this huge flare of people wanting to do everything right now. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's help. Let's help. But I knew from experience that this was going to be a marathon, not a sprint. So we had to figure out how to get our people lined up so that they were rotating in and out who was supporting on COVID so that people didn't burn out and had time to take care of themselves and their families, as well as the rest of running the business. Because COVID didn't stop people from shopping on Amazon or playing, you know, Fortnite because Epic runs on, on AWS. Like these things didn't stop just because of the pandemic. So the normal business had to keep going and this other. Well, we got to about... October of 2020 and my body gave out. I had some heart problems and I was just, it was too much. And so I talked to my husband and I was like, well, between my health and the fact that I am genuinely burned out and unhappy, this isn't the right place for me anymore. So at what many would have considered the peak of my career at AWS, you know, I was on track to get promoted again. I was on track for all these big things. I was one of the up and coming names in the building. I quit. And I quit without a safety net. I mean, I got a job like two weeks later because I'd already been talked to a couple people, but I quit and I did it for my health and for my mental well-being. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever done. But that's the thing is I encourage people to try things even though they're crazy and then to also not be afraid to quit things, even though it seems crazy. 
Yeah. I think that's really important advice. I Yes. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit, I think, with one of our other guests, this idea that like you have like it it can be hard to re to realize that like what seemed like the pinnacle or the thing you really wanted to do at one point is not what you want to be doing anymore. But like that's it's okay to quit, right? Like it is okay. Mm-hmm. When your your priorities have changed, what you what you thought the thing you wanted actually looks like in reality are two different things, you know, like, I don't know. I can see. Or maybe you got there and realized, okay, what's next? Yeah. What's or, next? <laughs> you know, I got that big wanted VP title uh, in my most recent role. And of course I got caught up in the tech layoffs that have been rolling through, but I'll be real with you. I put my pants on the same way when I'm a vice president as I did any other time. The responsibilities actually weren't that different from when I wasn't a VP, my paycheck was a little bit bigger and I got in more trouble if things went wrong. I was pretty mm-hmm. much about the only difference. <laughs> yeah. But I did. I sat there and I thought about it. And that's actually part of what got me writing my book was little kid me wanted to be an author. That's part of the reason for majoring in English. Like I wanted to be a writer. Now, of course, I thought my first book was going to be an epic fantasy or a sci-fi horror. Uh, Instead, it's a book with the irreverent title of Fuck It, Watch This. And it's talking about how basically I've made my career uh, out of looking when someone says, oh, that's impossible and going, yeah, fuck you, watch this. (laughs) Because, you know, starting the social media program. Oh, that's not possible. Oh, really? Watch this. Getting this one launch, uh, the, the mobile app launched. They gave me such a small window. No one thought I was going to be able to do it. I got it done. You know, reforming the launch operations program at AWS. I ran the most successful reInvent they'd had where there were no leaks. And also no one cried in my launch room. I was very proud. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I've, I've made a whole career. And that's what the book talks about is like these kind of unconventional lessons the Coast Guard taught me. There's a lot of weird, sometimes gross sea stories like about how getting seasick can help you learn some stuff about yourself. But yeah, the book talks all about like unconventional paths to find what you actually want to do and not letting people tell you it's impossible, finding a way around that. But being a VP made me realize to write it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, cause like when I went back to school in my thirties for a PhD, like that wasn't an easy choice, right? Like I had to quit and go back full time. And that was a big I lifestyle remember. change. I remember and, we talked about that. Yeah. Like it's not a small choice, but you know, something that people, especially in the sciences, you hear a lot about kind of these crises that people have of why are they even there? And like just the emotional toll and that part of, of being in school can be really challenging. And, you know, I'm not saying I didn't have certain challenges as a PhD student because I did, but because I had had to get where I was and make a really that really hard choice. I knew I really wanted to be there, right? Like it wasn't, there There mm-hmm. was no inertia taking me into that program. I had to make some pretty strong decisions to get to where I was. And so that part of it was way easier for me, I think, than a lot of my colleagues, because I just, I was, I knew why I wanted to be there. And I didn't like, I felt yeah. pretty good about that. <laughs> you know, I didn't have those same issues because oh, I had to make, you know, so sometimes doing those things can be hard and it's not, easy but it doesn't mean it's impossible it doesn't mean you can't do it well and you made that decision for yourself yeah not because someone told you oh hey you should get a phd you had a good job you were doing great yeah and i remember when you're like hmm this isn't quite it yeah i know what i want to do and it was awesome watching that whole thing and that's that's i think something that a lot of us just we get a lot of pressure on who we're supposed to be especially as women 
we get a lot of pressure on what we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to talk, what we're supposed to do, uh, without quoting the entire monologue from uh, the Barbie movie. Mm -hmm. But it took me a while to really, well, my mom would tell you I've been saying, fuck it, watch this since I was like too old, too young to know the words, but (laughs) it, it took me a while to do it consciously. I've been doing it on my own. I've been doing it my whole life. But it's only as I've gotten older that I've done it knowing that I'm making things harder for myself sometimes. I have never taken the easy path. You know, when you asked what was it like uh, launching social media and stuff, I don't know. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm an adrenaline junkie who just likes to argue with people. But, um, <laughs> but it seems to be that, like, I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people why something is in their best interest and then biting my tongue and not saying told you so when I was proven right at the end. But yeah. So I, you know, before you mentioned, you mentioned ADHD before, is that something you're, Mm -hmm. you, you feel comfortable identifying as somebody with ADHD? Okay, cool. So like, that's actually, I just realized that's something that I think might be interesting here. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel that one of the things we've, I've, you know, we learn about ADHD when we get diagnosed is they talk a lot about lack of impulse control. And sometimes you have trouble, like you don't necessarily have the best control over your impulses and, you know, in general, it's always talked about as a negative thing. But I I think a lot about how sometimes being somebody who has poor impulse control has is a, is a benefit, too. Because I've <laughs> made a lot of decisions kind of on the fly before. And I've gotten to see them, you know, when they go bad, when they don't. But I've gotten to see that sometimes you can just decide to do something. And if you put some effort into it, you can still make it work, even if it doesn't seem like it's possible. And I, and I wonder if there's any element of that for you that seems like... There definitely is. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the thing is, is that there's the hyper focus, the hyper fixations, the, the spaciness. There's a whole bunch of different things that go into ADHD. But one thing I would say uh, is that I've noticed that when I make what I think is a gut decision, like what you talked about, mm-hmm. my brain has already done all the processing. Mm-hmm. It's put together all these different things from my past and these different connections. And when I make a decision, I can actually go back and go, oh, I made this decision and here's all the things that fed into it, even though I might not have noticed it in the moment. And because one of the things that they found with people with ADHD is we're really good at making connections where there don't seem to be connections. Like we see patterns, we see the way different things map together. Uh, A good example is um, I was in a meeting with some of my peers at my, at my VP role and I was talking about a project I wanted to do. And one of my peers says, well, that's like trying to look at the whole ocean. You can't do that. Well, first first lesson here is never make a, an ocean reference <laughs> in front of a coastie because you're going to lose. Uh, and I said, funny you should say that. We can, in fact, look at the whole ocean. It's a system called AIS, and here's how it works. And actually, the process I'm talking about works the exact same way, and I mapped the two processes together on how bringing a product, and I'm actually talking at a conference in Zurich about this in November, about how bringing a product from ideation all the way through to into the customer's hand is very similar to how a ship is brought into the port by Coast Guards all over the world and how those two systems are very similar. Only someone with ADHD and a lot of weird background (laughs) would have made those two connections. (laughs) You know, And, and it's one of those things I found with other people with ADHD is we learn so much and we're so interested in everything and we hyper fixate, but then we don't lose it. We carry it with us. You know, you jokingly asked, is there anything I can't do? 
Well, until I was diagnosed with ADHD, I had no idea why I got myself to professional level photography and then got bored and went mm-hmm. and learned how to knit and then got bored and learned how to do amigurumi crochet <laughs> and then got bored. You know what I mean? And like, I never understood that, but I've always carried those things with me, which means that now I have spatial awareness when I'm looking at web design with a web team that I might not have had before I learned how to do photography. All of those things we carry with us. So if you have ADHD, lean into that as a superpower, like follow those interests, learn those things, and then figure out how they can apply to your day job. You know, I'm an English major who happened to love tech. You're making me feel so powerful right now. Like I cannot be stopped. (laughs) (laughs) You can't. Like, that's the thing is that like I, what I love seeing right now, especially when you look at some of the younger generations is embracing neurodiversity, that it Mm -hmm. is not a hindrance. Like my mom talked about it with me that when I was a little kid, they probably would have medicated me into a zombie. You know what I mean? Because back then, that's what they did with kids with ADHD. Yeah. They just medicated you and called it good. I have a lot of empathy for people our age who are like, like for me, going on medication is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. never took a single medication for ADHD until I was over 30 years old. Um, yeah, exactly. And I have a lot of empathy for other people I know who were medicated as children who really don't want to do medication now because I'm like, mm-hmm. it's hard. I mean, they used to really medicate hard. And even if you're in a better system than we used to have, Children don't have the language skills and the ability to express themselves and even just like the amount of like they they don't have the ability to really express exactly how it makes them feel in a way that they have yeah. a lot of agency over. Yeah. And so I can see how easy it would be to get over medicated and not really have any say in it. And that would really sour your taste for medications. I can I can completely understand how yep. that would happen. And yeah. you'd be surprised how many people uh, I have a friend, he jokes that he's on the spectrum and he joined the Coast Guard largely because it gave him masking abilities and it gave him the ability to, it forced him outside of himself. And he found that it helped him learn techniques that he wouldn't have learned if he went to a normal college. So he used it as a, as a, as a way to learn processes as, as a way to, to develop himself. And I will say as someone with ADHD moving every two to four years was great. Around about the time I was getting bored with a job, they'd move me (laughs) and I'd start something new. Um, But it really is. It's something that I don't hide. My team at at Oracle, my teams all know that I'm very open about having ADHD. I also have CPTSD and I'm pretty open about that as well and the challenges that can come with that. Like I'm not good in crowds, which is hilarious since part of my job like one year was to be a correspondent at one of our biggest events. <laughs> but you know, it's it it is a superpower in a lot of ways. I mean, it it's hard. It causes a lot of issues. It it's it's lonely sometimes, but there are so many great benefits as long as you just remember to look at them as benefits. That's nice. Which, I don't. Which uh, I don't often <laughs> look at them as benefits. <laughs> I also think being uh, diagnosed as an adult can carry some baggage with it too, of just like not understanding what was wrong with you your whole life, and then oh yeah, don't get me wrong, I was real pissed. <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but... Don't get me wrong. There was there was a lot of. I have a very good like. I think everyone should have a counselor or a therapist. Yeah. I have an amazing mm-hmm. therapist, and. Yeah, I mean, some of it was like, oh, my God, that's why I did that. Or, yeah. oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. You know, just kind of this sense of discovery. Wow. And it took me a little bit, though, to to not 
to not feel bitter and and kind of pissed about it. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I I I have tried to re-examine my path to now, and like some of the things that I've done have been because of that neurodivergence of looking at things in a different way. Yeah, yeah I some days it's easier than others. <laughs> I you know honestly I I use it a lot of times to just try to give like look back on things that. I struggled with, with a lot more compassion for myself. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, like, this is something I'm open about. And I try to be open about it to my students, to be honest, because I think it's like important for them to hear it. Like as an undergrad, I was kind of a C student. Like I failed a few classes. Um, A physics degree is hard. And I was in a major where they really didn't care a lot if we passed or not. I was in a class where over 60% of the class failed. Like they did not, they did not care. Yikes. And, you know, I used to, for a long time, I thought I would never get a PhD because I wasn't quote unquote smart enough. And I really thought that I wasn't like, I I looked back with a lot of shame at my grades and, and I felt like I wasn't good enough. And you know, now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, you were walking up a giant steep slope that a lot of your peers weren't and you didn't even know it. <laughs> and you still grad mm-hmm. and I still graduated and I still got that degree. Yeah. You know, like I like I look back now as like, wow, that's that's incredible that I did that. And yeah. I, I try really hard to open that up. So hearing one of the smartest people I know say that she was worried she wasn't smart enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> All right, uh, I'll be over here with my crayons. <laughs> and there's no hope for me. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's how I feel too all the time. Communications <laughs> major over here going to be coloring with my crayons. Um. I, you know, I just, I just, I think it's helpful to try to have some kind of compassion for your former self when you realize that you were fighting these things mm-hmm. that you didn't even know you had, you were fighting and still persevered yeah. in a lot of cases. And even in some cases where you didn't, like, at least just to be able to say, hey, no wonder I couldn't do that. Like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. No wonder that right. that was too much for me. Right. Because I didn't know, but that's why. And it, it's helped me a lot just looking back and being a lot more proud of that. And I, I wear those, I wear those grades with more of a badge of honor now. And I, again, like, I think it helps me relate to my students more because I think, first of all, it actually, like, I think them hearing it is good because they feel like I'm more approachable if I'm honest about that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. But also, honestly, it makes me a better teacher because I know what it's like to actually struggle. Yep. Like, you know, yeah. I know what it's like to fail a class. <laughs> I know what it's like yeah. to There's take a empathy. test and be so nervous about the test that I have to leave the room and throw up. You know, like, I, yep. I and it, it helps Been me there. be a better and more compassionate teacher. And I'm more, I try to be more accessible in my classroom and, like, because I... I got to live those experiences and, and I'm so much more attuned to what my students are feeling and, um, and what they're experiencing. And that kind of authenticity yeah. is perfect. Like yeah. that, that sort of authenticity is something I try to do as much as I can. Lisa, I'm not sure if you've seen yet, but today I put up some more, uh, quote unquote marketing for my book. My publisher told me to be my authentic self and I'm not sure that they knew what they were asking. <laughs> So I'm being completely ridiculous. Uh, thank you, Snapchat filters. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, that sort of authenticity, the leaders I admire the most, and I say leaders as in teachers, like managers aren't, aren't necessarily leaders. There are leaders and there are managers. There are leaders and there are teachers. You know what I mean? And the teachers I've always loved the most and the, the leaders I've always loved working for are the ones who are authentic. You know, they don't mind being silly sometimes or being ridiculous or just being honest about their own struggles or 
honest that they're worried about something. You know, they don't fill you full of fluffy bullshit and expect you to smile about it. They're real. And you can't fake that kind of authenticity. I've watched people try. You can't fake being empathetic. You can't fake being genuine. And people realize that. And those are the teachers and, and the leaders to me that mean the most and that make the most difference. Because there's probably half a dozen students in your class sitting there thinking, fuck, I hate this. I'm so dumb. I can't do it. And then they half hear what a dozen. you say. Well, I teach physical science as a service course. <laughs> okay, so 90% of your class is like, oh my God, what am I doing? And questioning reality. Um, I was being nice. Yeah, no, and I hate it for them. I wish I could fix it. Like, I wish I could convince them that they can do this and they're capable. They're their, wor- their own worst enemy. I mean, they are. Well, but isn't that true for all of us? I mean, yeah. at oh, the end yeah. of the day, when we look at anything we do, I'm always my worst enemy. Yeah. It took my, uh, the editor I worked for in London back in, dear God, 2001, 2002, when I was an undergrad, has been on me since then to write a book. How many years has it been? (laughs) 20-something? And the whole reason I hadn't done it was because it was too hard. I couldn't think of something. I would start a book. I'd write the whole draft. I probably have three novels completely drafted and have never looked at them again because they're awful. (laughs) You know, we are always our own worst enemy, and we're always looking at ourselves worse than anyone else does. My cat just stepped on the keyboard, but I don't think she destroyed anything. By stepped, I mean <laughs> fell. She just fell over on the keyboard because she has no coordination. <laughs> oh, little my little broken mm. baby. Um. <laughs> okay, so I guess we're hitting, you know, close to 50 minutes and we're trying to keep this like under yep. an hour. So I, I'm going to yep. bring it around back to your book since you have a book coming out. That's so exciting. Yes. And is there anything you want to tell us about your book that we haven't already talked about? Tell us, like, give, give me some interesting things. So I got really sick of fluffy bullshit leadership books. Uh-huh. Because some, when you're in the Coast Guard, you go through leadership and management training at least once a year, sometimes twice. Sometimes if they're enthusiastic more than that. And they have the books you read every year. And, you know, I've seen all these different admirals and generals writing books. And so I've read a lot of leadership books and a lot of management books. And yeah, they're all pretty good. But first of all, they're all written for a very certain type of person. They're all very neurotypical. They're all very linear. But beyond that, they're also a lot of thought leadership kind of stuff, but not actual tactics. Like, they tell you to do this grand thing, but they don't tell you how. So um, I have a bit of a weird sense of humor, um, and I have uh, anyone who works with me, and Lisa knows this pretty well, I'm blunt as fuck. Uh, (laughs) I tend to just lay things out, cut through the noise, cut through the bullshit. And I had so many people coming to me asking me for mentorship and for advice that I was actually starting to repeat myself. I looked at my husband one day and I said, I should just write this as a book a no-nonsense, lessons the Coast Guard sometimes didn't mean to teach me book. Like, I have one chapter called How to Be a Maverick, Not a Dipshit. (laughs) And I talk about the difference between the Pendleton case, one of the most uh, well-known historic cases. The movie The Finest Hours was made about it. And the differences between those guys going out into a scary storm at one of the most dangerous bars, crossing one of the most dangerous sandbars, in the 50s. And I compare them to the guys who tried to go to the Titanic in a submarine made of carbon fiber. <laughs> and I talk about the differences that to be a maverick, you need to know the rules and what you can and can't bend. One of the rules you can't bend is physics. 
So, you know, it's, it's the book actually talks about, so, okay, if you're going to try to decide, okay, I need to be a maverick here. How do you actually make the decision to be successful at it and not be a dipshit and not do something that's wrong? And so I lay out step by step the questions you need to ask yourself, the data you should try to find and that sort of thing. So each chapter uh, is, is laid out with how to be brave and this is how you do it and how to be ridiculous and authentic. My favorite chapter is probably the one where I talk about the five uh, manager types. And um, of course, they had to have mostly nautical names. So you'll find out about like what makes an octopus manager, what makes a seagull manager um, and how not all of them. There's only one type I list in the book that's really bad <laughs> that you want to run from. It's the blue falcon. You do not want a blue falcon. You want to run. But every other manager type of the, the other four, you can work with them. You just got to see them for what they are and know how to work with them. And I give you exact tactics on how to work with them to at least maintain your sanity and keep your career going. It's pretty blunt. It's very tactics oriented. And it's told with a kind of a wry sense of humor. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see how many admirals uh, get mad at me and unfriend me on Facebook or disconnect with me on LinkedIn. Should be interesting. Ooh. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me the day before I heard that you had a book coming out, if I wanted to read a leadership book of any kind, I would have said absolutely not. I have read some and <laughs> I'm done. Like, there's nothing in those books for me. And then, like, you said, I'm writing a leadership book. And I'm like, well, obviously, I'm going to read that. <laughs> and it's not just because I like you and we're friends. It's because I definitely want to hear what you have to say on this topic. I, you know, this is. This is something yeah. I think will be genuinely interesting to read. And I'm not even in a, you know, a traditional kind of like leadership role like that. Right. But I still think there's going to be interesting <laughs> stuff to read. So I'm excited to read it. Well, I yeah, just met fun. you and I think it sounds great, too. And I don't have any <laughs> well, sort of leadership needs. So I'm still going to read it. Well, it also talks about like your career. So it's not just about leadership. Yeah. I also talk about like getting where you want to be and who you want to be, because I think all of us in some ways are a leader of something. We just don't necessarily know it, um, you know, in your friend group or in your hobbies or, you know, there's, there's places where people look to you for support or leadership. And, and this, I, I try to make it clear that you don't have to be trying to make VP. You don't have to try to make president of your university. This can be about, you know, oh, I want to focus on myself and I want to be the best teacher I can, or I want to go back to school and, learn to do art, it, it goes over like, here's the system, how do you work within the system to be who you want to be and become a leader if you want to. So it kind of covers a little bit of everything. That's cool. Uh, did you say when it comes out? It's out in March. Pre-orders, well, pre-orders will probably be closed by the time this publishes. So yeah, it's out in March. Cool. Well, this was awesome. Yeah. I really enjoyed having you here. Where, where would you like to be found on the internet? Where can people find you? They want to learn more about you. <laughs> oh, dear God. The internet's a trash fire anymore. Mm -hmm. Don't look for me on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, no, it's true, right? Yeah. I'm on Blue Sky under Oceanbound. I'm also on Mastodon. Also, Oceanbound at hackaderm.io. And other than that, I'm on LinkedIn under Anastasia Visneski. Cool. What did you say your Blue Sky was? Uh, Oceanbound at bluesky.social or whatever. Yeah. I love that the names have gotten so long. <laughs> yeah. It's so helpful. I've just, um, I'm just learning it. I don't know a lot about it yet. I don't understand why we're calling them skis. It's basically, uh, that's because blue sky, sky, tweet, skeet, 
Oh my God, nobody's yeah. ever explained yeah. that to me. Yeah. Now I understand. I don't like the term skip, yeah. though. I refuse to use it. Yeah. No, well, it's because it's a, it's a, you, it's an urban dictionary yeah. term. Yeah, yeah. it's gross. Like, <laughs> that's, that's all I can um, think of when I hear that. Basically, blue sky is essentially 2005, 2006 Twitter. Yeah, it does. It has like that really good. No video, no sorting. It has really good old Twitter vibes, and that's something I like yeah. about it. Yeah. Same. But it is, I will say that it is making a lot of things harder because from the crisis management standpoint and disaster response standpoint, Twitter had been a really good tool for crisis management and getting information out to people rapidly. And like, I was just down in LA when the, um, when the tropical storm hit and I couldn't find, like you used to be able to pull up Twitter and be able to easily see what was going on. Yeah. No, when I pulled it up to see about the tropical storm, I had to go and hunt the NOAA sites and, and all that because there was so much misinformation and garbage. It's it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, as someone who used Twitter as a disaster response yeah. tool, um, it is pretty heartbreaking what they're doing to that site. That's even more reason to be mad about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you so much, though. This was great. You're amazing. Yeah, happy to. You've been listening to You Can Do That with Lisa and Lee. We're just going to keep interviewing people until we get the person who spells things for NASA to come on our show. If you like the show, you can help us out by leaving a review on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And you can join us next time where we interview Logan Jenkins about game designing and podcasting with your friends. One day, you'll be able to find us on a website or social media. But in the meantime, we've at least managed Instagram. You can find us there at You Can Do That Pod. If you have any great ideas for a guest, you can send us an email at youcandothatpod at gmail.com or you can do something with Instagram. I don't know what Instagram does. Comment? Just send us an email. <laughs> One of us will definitely look at Instagram, so there's that. And I stalk emails, so, well, get in touch. Um, Thanks for listening. Bye.